Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 43, the bottom of page 43. The Shema, part three. The Vayomer paragraph, the third paragraph of the Shema. This is an interesting paragraph because the Talmud actually asks, why did the sages include this paragraph as part of the Shema? It's kind of a its own thing. We're talking about we're talking about the Exodus from Egypt and Sitsis and like why are we reciting this paragraph? It's in a totally different section of the Torah. It's not even in Deuteronomy. It's in the book of Numbers. So if you look in actually Mike Tractate Brachos. Mike, where are you up to in Brachos? Do you remember? I didn't mean to put you on the spot. You said it's number like 10 ish, 10, 11? Yeah, I think we're ten a five. Okay, you'll get to page twelve, and the Talmud discusses actually various traditions and history of what sages wanted to include as part of the Shema throughout history. There was a time where they wanted to include the Ten Commandments, and that was vetoed because there's more than Ten Commandments, and why are we going to? Tell people that there's Ten Commandments. It's not true. <laughs> Why are we singling out? There, there, and there's a whole discussion about that. There 15. was a time where they... Yeah, exactly. 15 according to, to Mel Brooks. There's a time where they wanted to include the portion of Bilam's curse, uh, blessings to the Jewish people that ended up... You know, it, it was intended as a curse, but turned into blessings to the Jewish people. Um, Which which is an important part of, of Judaism. And, and they seen that as a central part of Judaism. Um, that was vetoed for various reasons, as discussed there in the Talmud. And then the Talmud says, okay, well, all these things are vetoed because the sages didn't want to overdo it. You can't do overkill. You can't recite the whole Bible every morning. <laughs> um, why is the Parsha, the portion of Vayomer, the third paragraph, why is that there? And the Talmud says, because if you count, you'll see six fundamental mitzvahs, six fundamental values in this paragraph. Let's quickly look at the six. Let's read through the paragraphs, and we're going to count through the six of them. Um, you with me? Bottom of page 43. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel and tell them to make for themselves fringes on the corners of their garments. Tzitzis, that's number one. That's considered to be a central fundamental value. Uh, we'll soon see why. We'll go through all of them one by one. Number two. It's actually out of order, but the end of the paragraph, and this is important. Um, page 44. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The reason that there is a biblical commandment to remember every single day the exodus from Egypt. So we include that as part of the Shema, even though it's technically an independent mitzvah. When you recite this paragraph, you're fulfilling a biblical commandment to remember the Exodus, even though it's technically its own thing. But it's part of the Shema. Number three. I know we're going out of order here, but turn back to page 43 in the top. Um, the top or the third paragraph? So, sorry, sorry, the third paragraph. Six lines from the top, middle of the page. 
What is the reason for the tzitzis? They shall be to you as tzitzis, and you shall look upon them and remember all the commandments of the Lord and fulfill them. So the same theme as the previous paragraph, accepting God's commandments. That's pretty fundamental. That's what tzitzis is really all about. Number four. And you will not follow after your heart. Don't follow your heart. Contrary to what all the life coaches say, <laughs> don't follow your heart. That's an important value because heresy is essentially saying that the Torah is not valid. My heart is valid. What I feel is right is right. I'm not going to rely on a book or on a God or whatever to tell me what's right. And that's heresy. That's an important value to remember. And after your eyes, don't follow your eyes either. Right? Don't follow after your heart or after your eyes. Which, um, That's also a fundamental value. Protecting our eyes, protecting what we see. Making sure that we don't um, facilitate sinful thoughts. There's a biblical prohibition not only against sinning, but thinking about sinning. That's actually a biblical prohibition as well. Um, the only reason why one would think about sinning is because they know what that looks like. <laughs> They've seen it. Right? You go to Vegas, you got to take your glasses off. Because we're, it's a biblical prohibition to allow ourselves to, uh, to facilitate in our minds inappropriate imagery. And that's an important fundamental Jewish value. There was a rabbi known as the Baba Sali. Has anybody heard of the Baba Sali? The Baba Sali I was... Have. Yeah, you heard of him? His yard site was a week ago or, or two weeks ago. He passed Where away... He um, when did he pass away? In like the 90s, maybe? He was a Moroccan rabbi, Sephardic rabbi. A very saintly person. He was a Kabbalist. You have certain people that look at you and they just see your soul and you look at the, the, the and, and you know there's stories about the baba sali where where he he was a miracle worker he really was the, the amount of stories that are written about him um he was much older the side point he was much older than the lubavitcher rebbe he wrote a letter to the rebbe he's in israel he from, went from Morocco to France to Israel, leading an entire Sephardic congregation. Uh, he, he had a huge following. He wasn't looking for a following, but he had a huge following. And he writes a letter to the Rebbe that I understand from on high that you're a saintly person. And with your permission, I'd like to move to Crown Heights and I'll do, you know, and become a Chabadic. <laughs> this huge. Sephardic Kabbalist saint who has hundreds of thousands of people following him and going into advice says, I want to follow you with your permission. Because I understand that that uh, there's something here. I want to leave Israel, move to Crown Heights, to Brooklyn. Very few people want to leave good places and go to Brooklyn. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the Rebbe's response to him was no. You need to be influential to the Sephardic community. Right, it's not a we're it's not about uh gaining followers. Anyway, the Baba Sali was an incredibly saintly person, had an incredible uh, vision, a spiritual vision. There's stories and you can ask people who have witnessed this story. 
of him pouring wine at a gathering and the wine bottle running out, covering the bottle, continue, covers the bottle with a napkin and continues to pour. The guy was a, in, in a different world. Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. At some point, I think he was the chief rabbi. I think he's currently the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. He was the chief rabbi of Israel. And he asks the Baba Salim, where do you, where does this come from? You learn Torah? You're steeped in Kabbalah? So am I. I know a lot of Torah and I'm also steeped in Kabbalah. What 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 do you what is where does this come from? Where does this saintliness come from? The Babasali looks at him and he says, Ever since I can remember, I've always watched where I looked. I protected where I looked. I protected what my eyes what I allow my eyes to see. My eyes are pure. There's no impurity allowed. The eyes are the window to the soul. And when we see things that we shouldn't be, we're allowing that into our consciousness. We're allowing that to become a part of us. And I'm sure all these psychologists can explain the, the psychological implications as well. Um, the chemical implications of endorphins, the psychological implications of expectations, but there's spiritual implications as well. And the way the Talmud words it, actually, it says, well, don't follow after your heart and after your eyes by which you go astray. It says the eye see and the heart desires. And they kind of go hand in hand. We follow what we see. When we recite the Shema, that first line, we cover our eyes. It's not about what we see. Okay, so far we got five, right? Tzitzis. Exodus from Egypt, mitzvahs, which is represented by tzitzis, um, preventing heresy, which is following our heart, preventing seeing things that we shouldn't be seeing. Um, the first and the third one, idolatry, by which you go astray. Right? Um, preventing idolatry, preventing ourselves from going astray, from follow, from, from turning away from God. These are six important values. And the common thread that they all have, the Shema. God is one. There's only one God. That's what they all boil down to. Tzitzis, doing the mitzvahs, like we spoke about last week. A mitzvah is only, a commandment is only valuable in context of a commander. The moment we don't believe in a commander, we just believe in commandments as a ritual or as a, as a, uh, as something sentimental, it becomes malleable. It tends to, to be formed and to change. Jews have traditionally always believed that commandments had a commander and that's why the commandments don't change because the commander doesn't change. The moment commandments change, well, that's because I don't believe in a commander. That's an important value. God is one. Right? It all boils down to God is one. 
You know what's interesting about tzitzis? You know, the tradition is we hold the tzitzis during the Shema. And the tradition is to hold them with the left hand. Right? Why are we holding them with the left hand? Closest to the heart. Close to the heart, right? The, the heart's on the left side. So commentaries explain that the mitzvahs represented by tzitzis, tzitzis is the reminder for mitzvahs, it's something we need to take to our heart. It's something we remind ourselves that we want to connect with emotionally. Tzitzis is an interesting mitzvah. It's almost an, an anomaly because it's one of those mitzvahs that you're not technically obligated to do. You don't have an obligation to wear tzitzis. You have an obligation to wear tzitzis if your garment has four corners. You technically don't need to wear tzitzis. If you have a four-corner garment, you need to put tzitzis on it. So we go out of our way. We get a four-corner garment. We put tzitzis on it. Great. We're doing a mitzvah. But it's interesting because something this mitzvah seems pretty fundamental. You have 613 mitzvahs, and one of them is to remind you of the other 612. That's pretty fundamental, right? Oh, but you don't have to do it. <laughs> what? So I read recently of an insight from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was an incredible rav and halachic authority who passed away in the 80s, I believe. 70s, I think the 80s. And he says, that's the message. We're reminding ourselves that I don't have to do mitzvahs, although I do. I get to do mitzvahs. Something I take to my heart. It's something I want to do. The Talmud tells a fascinating story about tzitzis. The incredible power that tzitzis has in reminding us of the sacredness of our heritage. There was a yeshiva boy who got enticed by someone who was quite provocative and felt compelled to pay her a visit. Pun intended. <laughs> he felt compelled to pay her a visit. As Yetzir Hara got the best of him. And apparently it was not a cheap visit either. And the Talmud describes this at length. When he goes to see her, the layers of rooms that he's going through and the drama that is built up, it was it was a and as he's removing his clothing about to sin, he sees his tzitzis. And you gotta understand at this point how hard it's gonna be to go back. Emotionally, physiologically, spiritually, the Eitahara has got him. The Eitahara has got him. Hook, line, and sinker, right? And he notices his tzitzis. And he just freezes. He says, oh. he says I'm out of here. This lady of ill rapport was almost offended. Like, what? Never gotten that before. What's Doesn't going he on? Marry her later, though. He ended up marrying her. Yeah. So, so yeah. you, so he, she said. But at this point, she was offended. She goes, "What's going on? Is there something?" 
He says, it's not you, it's me, right? Classic. We got it from the Talmud. It's not you, it's me. <laughs> I'm a Jew. I have sacred values. I was just reminded of them. I'm not giving that up for a moment of pleasure. She says, what's your name? Who are you? Where are you? He ends up leaving. She tracks him down. She finds out what yeshiva he's in. He goes back to yeshiva. Becomes a Baal Teshuva. She comes back to yeshiva. She comes to the yeshiva. It says to the rabbi yeshiva, I'm looking for so-and-so. And why? <laughs> um, I'd like to, she says, I want to convert. I want to convert to Judaism. He says, you can't convert for marriage. Doesn't work that way. This is what the Talmud says. I can't convert. You can't convert for marriage. It doesn't work that way. So she says, I'm not converting for marriage. I'm converting for truth. And she tells him the story, how she was inspired by this guy. She ended up converting. They ended up getting married. He ended up living with her. They're married now. The Talmud says something fascinating. The sheets that were about to be used for sin were now used for mitzvah. The incredible transformational power of teshuva. But what sparked this incredible transformation? This transformation from the ultimate darkness, the ultimate klipa, the ultimate... Uh, to, to something so beautiful and so sacred. What sparked that transformation? That's it, this. Remembering the commandments. But more importantly, remembering the commander. Commandments remind us of the commander. Another fundamental part of this paragraph, and this is probably the most, the main part of this paragraph, the biblical commandment of remembering the exodus of Egypt daily. We have to remember the exodus every single day. We have to mention it every single day, which parenthetically question for another time and the discussion for another time. But what is unique about Passover if we're supposed to be doing it every day? <laughs> okay, separate question for another time. But but um, we have a commandment of of mentioning the Exodus every single day, and the question is though, why is it doubled up as part of the Shema? It's its own separate mitzvah. We have a lot of mitzvahs that we need to do daily. We don't couple it up with the Shema. We don't make... Um, well, some of them we do, I guess, to fill in, right? But there's certain... It's it's technically its own separate thing. It's been coupled up with the Shema because the theme of the Shema, and we said this in chapter 47 of Tanya, the theme of Shema is leaving Egypt. Because what does Egypt really uh, mean on a personal level? On a more psychological, social, personal level? Mitzrayim, Egypt. is our own personal boundaries, our own personal constrictions. The Hebrew word for uh, Egypt, Mitzrayim, comes to the word Mitzar, boundaries. We have... We, we have these artificial boundaries in our life. 
We have a Yetzahara that tells us, I cannot. We have tunnel vision. Right? On, when we say the Shema, we cover our eyes and we say none of that is matters. <laughs> none of that's relevant. We have an incredible, infinite power to connect whenever we want, whenever we can, all the time. We're not limited. We're going to leave Egypt. We're out of that Egypt. That's the Shema. The Shema means God is one, even in this physical world, even in the most difficult of challenges, even in the most seemingly godless of places. We're going to leave Egypt. We're going to connect. Nothing's going to stop that connection. Nothing's going to stop that connection. Shema is synonymous with leaving Egypt. They go hand in hand. I'll tell you three stories about leaving Egypt. Leaving Egypt on a very personal level. Um, not just on the literal level. Story number one. When the Rebbe had his heart attack, they sent different doctors to attend to the Rebbe, one of which was Rabbi Raleigh's father, right? One of the Rebbe's cardiologists, his name was Dr. Ira Weiss. Ira Weiss was an observant Jew. By no means did he consider himself a quote-unquote Chabadnik. He was not part of that world. He, he'd become, through his experiences, an incredible, um, a deep admirer. He, he got an inside view of what Chabad really is, not just of what people, you know, see from, from, from the outside. He loved it. He was so inspired by it. And he says to the Rebbe at one of those meetings, can I ask you a question? I'm a deep admirer of Chabad. I love the idea. I'd love to involve myself and identify with, with this ideology of of love, of passion, of joy. I don't see myself looking like you guys. <laughs> I don't have a fedora. I'm not interested in wearing one. And I, I, I don't want to. That's not where I am. I love the ideology of it. What does it take to become one of your followers, though? The Rebbe told him, you want to be a chassid of the Rebbe? You want to follow Chabad? Wake up in the morning and ask yourself, how is today going to be better than yesterday? And how is tomorrow going to be better than today? That's what it is. Leaving Egypt. Leaving what we're used to. We're used to... We, we, we can't just not grow in our Judaism because there's certain parts of it that we're not used to. Leaving Egypt means becoming comfortable with truth. Even though I'm used to something that's not true. I, imagine the Jews in Egypt, the literal exodus. Do you imagine the trauma of this exodus? They were slaves for 210 years. How many generations is that? Slavery is normal to them. They had a hard time leaving. 
God had to push them out. When Moses first saw the Jewish people, he says he couldn't tolerate. He he couldn't stand their their burden that they were under sivlotam, the burdens that they had. That they were in slavery, but commentaries point out translations are dangerous. The word sivlotam doesn't just mean their burdens; it means their tolerance. Moses couldn't was so uncomfortable to him that the Jews were tolerating slavery because they were born into it. They were so comfortable with it. That's why Moses was the only Jew that didn't grow up with Jews. He grew up in an Egyptian household. And commentaries ask, what kind of Jewish leader is that? He's never tasted slavery. He's never been in the shtetl. He's never seen Fiddler on the Roof. He grew up in... <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding about the fiddle on earth, but he, he's grew up, he's never had the children that shul, right? He's never he's never uh, been part of synagogue politics. He doesn't know what Jewish community life is. He doesn't know what the slavery is like. He wasn't part of us. He grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth in Pharaoh's home. And commentaries point out, yeah, he knew what freedom was like, and he was able to not empathize, sympathize with the Jewish people, not be comfortable with that slavery. We become comfortable with a certain reality that we've been used to. And leaving Egypt means I'm leaving that comfort zone. It's not healthy. That comfort zone is not healthy. It's not good for us. Just because it's comfortable doesn't mean it's good. Usually if it's comfortable, it's not good. <laughs> then we become comfortable with a, with a better goodness, which is good. And we keep challenging ourselves. Story number two. There was a lady who would Received dollars from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. You know, people would line up every Sunday when the Rebbe would give out dollars and give out blessings. And and every time she would... Now, this was a lady who was who had become very inspired about her Judaism. Her husband, not so much. And they were, at this point, on very different pages in their relationship. Because she was passionate about Judaism and he was just, you know... Stayed the same. And that could be very that could be a very big challenge. She never mentioned anything. But every time she would go, she got a dollar. Or, and then the Reb would say, Here's a dollar for your husband as well. She never mentioned anything, but here's a dollar for your husband as well. Unfortunately, she had a family member, not her husband, someone else, who was accused of Something, I don't know what it was, but ended up in prison. So she went on Sunday to ask for a blessing. My relatives got to get out of prison. The rabbi gave a blessing, gave her the dollar, and said, here's a dollar for your husband to get out of prison. She's like, what? <laughs> this is a dollar for your husband to become free. To become free. We see Judaism as a... And, and, and eventually the husband actually became very inspired about his Judaism. Because the way we see Judaism, commandments, is a way to connect to the commander. These aren't restrictions. You know what the word for Jewish law is? Halacha. Right? What does halacha literally translate as? Halacha means to 
to go forward, to walk. It's a path. Paths may seem restrictive because it's you're telling me where to walk. <laughs> Paths are quite liter are, are liberating. They really are. Judaism is liberating. It's liberating for the soul because it makes our soul more comfortable to do mitzvahs. But even on a on a very human psychological level, Judaism is liberating. This is leaving Egypt. You don't have to make decisions. Decision fatigue, by the way, is a real thing. Steve Jobs, there's a, there was a, I just saw this on a picture somewhere. It was like six pictures of Steve, Steve Jobs from like the 80s, the 90s. And, and he's wearing the Steve Jobs costume in all these pictures. Why is Steve Jobs wearing the same thing every day? I'm not suggesting you wear the same thing every day, but why was Steve Jobs so stubborn with his wardrobe? He said, we only have the capacity to make a certain amount of decisions before getting overwhelmed. So I'm trying to minimize decision-making. Decisions are overwhelming. I work with people like this. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, with, with halacha, we don't have to make decisions. Decisions are made. I knew a guy who, through time, had, I guess, outgrown his rabbi, which happens sometimes. He was looking for a new rabbi. Um, it, it took him a long time to, to find the rabbi that was right for him. But when he did, he said it was so liberating. I don't need to make decisions. <laughs> I don't, I don't, there's a right and there's a wrong, and he's going to tell me what it is based on the Torah. Okay, story number three, leaving Egypt on a very personal level, which is what the Shema is all about. There's one God. I'm not bound by anything other than him. Rabbi Moshe Feller runs Chabad of Minnesota. All the Chabad centers in Minnesota are operated under his uh, management. At the time of this story, he was living in Crown Heights. And he was conducting a Seder at a girl's school. That was open for Pesach. It was a school for young women, college-aged women who didn't um, grow up with the Jewish educational background. And they were all there for Pesach. They didn't have anywhere to go for Pesach. They, their homes weren't conducting Pesach, so they stayed there for Pesach. And they were he was going to conduct the Seder there. The Rebbe came prior to the Seder to check it out. You know, wish them good Yom Tev and make them you know, they weren't at home for Pesach. Make them feel good. And the Rebbe says to Rabbi Moshe Feller, who's going to be reciting the four questions? He points to his seven-year-old son. Because the youngest child is supposed to do it. There's no children here. Who's going to do it? He says, my child's going to do it. His child was seven years old at the time. So the Rebbe turns to his child and says, do you know the four questions by heart? And the boy was intimidated. He didn't He was just like stunned. I guess he was a little bit more timid. It was just like, didn't answer. The Rebbe, he, the Rebbe asked him in Yiddish. The Rebbe then switched to English. Do you know the four questions by heart? And he nods, yes, I do. And then the Rebbe says, but do you know the answers? Everybody gave a nice chuckle. They have the Seder, they move on. The next morning at Shul, Rabbi Feller meets the Rebbe, tells him what transpired, how the Seder went. The Rebbe tells him, 
I asked your son if he knows the four questions, and then I asked, does he know the answer? We all had a nice chuckle. I wasn't joking. <laughs> this was a question I wanted everybody to understand. We know the questions, but do we know the answers? In other words, the we have the questions. We're going through the four questions. We're going through the through the ritual. Let's now ask the four questions. We all know the ritual. But do we know the answers? Do we know the meaning behind it? Judaism isn't just a ritual. There's something meaningful behind it. There's answers. There's depth. That's what leaving Egypt is. We're not just doing the same thing. We might be reciting the same text. I, I just heard a good line yesterday or two days ago. It says the Amida prayer should be inconsistent. Your Amida shouldn't be the same every day. <laughs> Our davening should be very inconsistent. It shouldn't be the same every day. That's leaving Egypt. It's not the same every day. New challenges, new opportunities for growth. We're not just reciting the same four questions. You gotta leave you. The Rebbe told Rabbi Feller, by the way, go back to the girls and to the tell everybody. I wasn't joking. You gotta clarify that it wasn't a joke. I meant that literally. The common thread of all of these six points in this Vayomer paragraph. Titus, reminding the value of mitzvahs. And even more important, the command of the mitzvahs, leaving Egypt. Preventing ourselves from just following our own hearts and following heresy, watching what we see, and from astraying after idolatry. It all boils down to one God. Because if we are firm in our connection, our relationship, our love, our passion for this one God, we've left Egypt. We can embrace mitzvahs. We can negate idolatry and heresy. And we can protect our eyes because we have better things to, to look, to view it, to follow. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.